Thank you, Steve. That's great. Well, great to be back here with you this morning. And uh, I may have to come out of PowerPoint and go back in to make this thing work, I think. So just excuse me just a second while I do this. But in the meantime, if you'd like to look for Matthew chapter 18, that's what we're reading from this morning. Ah. Ah, come on. That's the one. I noticed that you gave last week's preacher um, four verses to work with, and this week I've got the whole chapter 18. (laughs) So, yeah. So I was just thinking on the way here, I'm just glad it's not Matthew 19. We spent two years in Belmont working out what we believed about divorce and remarriage, and I'm glad I don't have to do that with you this morning. You've got that to come. Anyhow, let's read Matthew chapter 18, shall we? This computer has just gone crazy here, so I don't know quite what's happening. I'm going to start it again. You get these things set up half an hour before the service, and then they'll work for you. Anyhow, let's do the reading. That's the important thing. So Matthew 18. Uh, uh, hang on a second. Yes, okay, I think we'll, we'll sort that in a moment. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change... And become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone uh, hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven 
is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you had begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you, said Jesus, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Well, there is so much in that, you could spend several weeks working on it. But uh, let's just look at uh, one side of it this morning. We've now got a picture up there. I have to tell you, I'm instructed to tell you that this first slide was put together by um, Isabella Grace Mathers and Jessica Ruth Mathers, my grandchildren. They had a sleepover last night, and so they uh, supervised my putting together the PowerPoint this morning. So that is their favourite sheep from the whole internet. And the reason we've got that up there is because this is really what this passage is about. It's about sheep. It's about people who are following a shepherd. You see, over the last few chapters in Matthew, Jesus has started to get it across to his disciples that he's not going to be around forever. After that moment in Caesarea Philippi, where they realized who he was, where uh, where Peter said to Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus has started to feed into their uh, consciousness the idea that he is going to die. If you look back, for example, to chapter 16, from that time onwards, it says in verse 21, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. He must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. And it's at that point, of course, that Peter starts saying, no, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. But you find in the next chapter, Jesus is saying it again. And it says their hearts were filled with grief. Because now it's starting to sink into their their consciousness that Jesus is not making a joke. He's not just having a bad morning. This is something he's absolutely sure about. And so you reach a point where they're starting to think, what is the community going to look like? But they're still conscious that Jesus is going to come in power. And they still haven't got the point about what it means to live in Jesus' community. And so it's just after Jesus has done the miracle that uh, uh, you were thinking about last week that it says at the start of chapter 18, at that time, at that very point where Jesus has shown that Peter can do nothing and he can do everything, at that point, the disciples come to Jesus and say, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Him? Me? Him? (laughs) They're jockeying for position. They want to be in charge. They haven't got the simplest thing straight in their minds about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is to say, greatness in the kingdom of heaven is a different matter. It's a matter of humility. And so I reckon he's got five things that he wants to say in this chapter, and we'll just go through uh, the five of them uh, very quickly this morning. The first four verses, it seems to me, are about living humbly with other people. 
And then he goes on and talks about what it means to give encouragement to other people, to welcome them or to stumble them. You have the choice. Third, he talks about placing value on other people. And this is where the sheep come in, isn't it? Because he talks about the shepherd who goes off to rescue the one sheep that's wandered away from the rest of the flock. The fourth thing is he's talking about reaching unity with other people. Yes, but what if you fall out with somebody? What if there's a disagreement? What if they're definitely in the wrong? If my brother sins against me, how do I treat him then? It's all right having this lovey-dovey arrangement of sheep and caring for others and so on. But what if the sheep are sometimes messy? Sheep are sometimes smelly. What do you do in that situation? And so there's that thing as well. And then finally, Jesus ends by talking about showing mercy to others. And that's where that story that he tells Peter is all about. Just keep on forgiving, he says, because you have already been forgiven more than you could ever pay back. So let's look at those five things. And uh, hopefully they'll give us a few uh, ideas about how we ought to treat one another as sheep following the same shepherd. So the first thing is about living humbly with others. And Jesus answering this arrogant question they've asked, who is the greatest? Is he greater than me? Am I bigger than him? Is he going to be the vice president and I'm going to be the the secretary? What's going to go on? Who's going to be the treasurer? Oh, I quite fancy that job. They're all looking for jobs and Jesus takes a little child and stands him in the middle of them. Now, why a child in the middle of them? They would have felt quite uncomfortable about that. Because Jewish young males like them, who weren't even married yet and probably had no paternal instincts, didn't spend much time with children. (laughs) Well, most of them weren't married. We know that uh, Peter was, for example. But um, uh, children didn't count for anything very much. It wasn't like nowadays, uh, where children's advertising on television is all over the place. They have their own channels, CBBS. Nick Jr., all of that sort of stuff. And uh, children really count for an awful lot because advertisers and manufacturers have built it in our civilization to such a point that we spend more money on children than anything else. In those days, they didn't count for very much. For one thing, most of them didn't last very long. There was a very high mortality rate amongst children. For another thing, childhood ended pretty quickly. By the time you were 12, if you were a girl, you would be married off. (laughs) By the time you were 13, if you were a boy, you'd be learning a trade, and that would be you, sorted out for the rest of your life. And you didn't have the freedom or the importance in the family that children do nowadays. So Jesus was taking somebody fairly small and insignificant and standing him right in the middle of these power brokers of the future, people who wanted to be kings and emperors and vice presidents and things like that. He's saying, look at this child. Why a child? Why did he make a child the example of what he was talking about? I think there are probably three reasons for that. First of all, because children are trusting. And he says, you're not even going to get near the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to be in the kingdom unless you're like a child. You don't get there by your own achievements. You don't get there by being good. You don't get there by making a name for yourself. The only way into the kingdom is to accept something trustingly in the way that a child does. You know, children are great at that, aren't they? It's all right, don't worry. Dad's here. You won't be, you'll have no problems. And they stop crying. They believe in you. Jump down and I'll catch you. And they do. Try doing that with a 35 year old. Yeah. And children trust. That's the important thing. That's why you have to stop them wandering off with strangers that want to give them sweets and things like that. Because children do just naturally trust. And Jesus is saying, that's the first step in getting into the kingdom of heaven. And if, as Steve was saying, you're not a Christian here this morning then that's the thing that you have to get hold of more than anything else. You can't do anything 
to get yourself into the kingdom of heaven. No achievements, no great things that you learn or do or anything like that. You just have to trust. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life. My old dad was a prison evangelist at the end of his life, and he used to give out Bible study courses to prisoners, young men in in, in jail, to do week by week. And I always remember correcting some of them for him. And one week, correcting one uh, where at the end of the course, there was a little box that said, tick here if you would like to to become a Christian. And this guy had ticked the box. And it said uh, underneath, uh, write here your reason if you tick the box. And he simply said, the gift of God is eternal life. And while I have the chance, I will take it. And I know that lad's life, like many others, was just transformed by simply accepting a gift. And that's what it is. If you don't understand that, talk to somebody about it before the service is over, before you go home, because it's the most important information you will ever hear. Anyway, children are trusting. But I think there's another thing. Children are honest. And uh, children tell you how it is. Like uh, Ella, one of the architects of that sheep, at at breakfast this morning was saying to Granny, Granny, I don't like your butter. (laughs) <laughs> she's very picky about food so is her sister it's all to do with being twins and premature we reckon isn't it and also being let off with murder by their mum but she, she better not listen to this tape anyhow um, but they're, they're honest aren't they children Ella's the same one who was, who was saying later on we've got to do something special for auntie on mother's day because she's not a mummy she doesn't have boys and girls so we've got to do something special for her very straightforward and honest that's what kids are like isn't it they cut through right to the heart of the matter And Jesus is saying, you guys, you're trying to be fancy, you're wheeling and dealing and trying to get position. You've got to be like a child. You've got to be straightforward. So that what you see is what you get. And it's when you're honest and pure in heart, that's when you start becoming great in the kingdom of heaven. And the third thing, children are insignificant. And Jesus says, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to treat yourself as if you're not the most important person in the world. In honor, preferring one another before yourselves as the Apostle Paul puts it. It's not that you think nothing of yourself. It's not that you shrink into a corner, oh, I'm useless, I'm untalented, I'm hopeless, I'm a piece of rubbish, just you go and do it. It's not that way at all. But it's while you have every confidence in the value that God places upon you and in the good gifts he's given you and in the things you can do, and it's while you think you matter because God thinks you matter, that you still put other people out there in front of you. That's when you start becoming great in the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first thing, living humbly with others. But Jesus goes on from that point, doesn't he? And uh, in verses 4 to 6, he gives a really stern warning. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who causes me to sin, be better for him to have a millstone hung round his neck, which is what that round thing is. It's a millstone. Okay, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Welcome. These little ones, he says, who believe in me. He's not just talking about literal children now, is he? He's talking about people who've become Christians, who are children in faith, who are finding their feet in the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying it's desperately important what you do with people like that. You need to welcome them in. Here's a a slide, uh, a picture from a Billy Graham campaign back in the 60s. And Billy Graham made a name for himself for all sorts of things. His honesty, his open financial dealing, his, 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 his openness to people of all sorts of denominations, all kinds of things. But one of the great things about him was the fact that he would not be racially divisive 
in what he did at all. Most preachers in America in those days said, well, it's a very difficult situation. You know, there's segregation in many states. We need to reach people with the gospel. Therefore, you know, we don't agree with it. But if the whites have to be in one area and the blacks have to be in another, or if we have to do a whites-only crusade, we'll do that because at least we're reaching people. And Graham simply said, no, that's not what the gospel is about. You can't talk about the love of God. You can't talk about the welcoming shepherd unless you bring all of his people together. So for years he would never go to South Africa, for example, because he said this is wrong and it needs to be stood against. And in every crusade he, he held in those southern states of America, he'd, he'd say the same thing. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come in the same way, welcoming people. And maybe that's one of the reasons that he has had such an enormous effect. And his death, even now at the age of 99, is international news all over the internet, all over the newspapers, because he was somebody who showed a welcome to the kingdom of heaven that many others were were failing to show. But Jesus says the other possibility is that you stumble people. You stand in their way. And that is serious business. Because when somebody starts to believe in Jesus Christ, it's like they're a new baby in a new family. And babies need nurturing. You don't leave them lying around in their pram and thinking about three days, oh, I suppose I better give the baby some food now. You don't do that. You look after them. And yet how many people have come to faith and then been told, well, it's great that you're a Christian now. Uh, come to church on Sunday, 9.30, 6 o'clock. Don't be late and I will see you in heaven. You can't do that, can you? You need to look after new life. And that word, scandalizo, to stumble, it's the word that we get scandal from, obviously. It means all kinds of different things. Here's, here's uh, some of the, the meanings of it. To put a stumbling block or impediment in the way upon which another may trip and fall. To cause or to make to stumble. So one of the things we can do for people is to trip them up. We can do things in front of them that challenge their new faith, that make them think, I didn't know a Christian would do that. You can't be a Christian and hate other people, criticize other people like he's doing. We can do things which shatter their illusions and and, and make them feel, well, this Christianity thing's just a fraud anyway, isn't it? And we have to be very, very careful. We don't trip people up. Then there are other things. It can be more than that. Not just doing things in front of them, but enticing them to do other things. Because the second definition here is to entice to sin. Uh, to, 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 to actually draw somebody into something evil. And it's possible to do that too, isn't it? To get people lowering their standards, doing things that they know are wrong just because you are doing it and you are actually encouraging. It's possible to tempt them to do wrong as well as to trip them up. And there's a third thing as well. Because uh, the, the next definition is to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. To cause to fall away. The more you gossip, the more you criticize other Christians, the more you pass on stories which may or may not be true about other people, the more corruption you cause, the more cynicism you spread. And this kind of acid bath can destroy and corrupt the faith of somebody who's just started. So Jesus says, listen, welcome them. Don't turn them away. And whatever you do, don't stumble them. Give encouragement to other people. Build them up. Help them grow. Don't put them in a situation where their faith's challenge may even die away. So you, you can trip them up. You can lead them into sin. You can distort their thinking. All of those things are millstone territory. Okay, three to go and 13 minutes. We're doing all right here. Um, the third one is about placing value on others. And this is where Jesus gives uh, uh, 
the first little picture of, of, of this chapter, isn't it? And in verse, verse 12, he talks about this man who has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. Now, we often use this, don't we? Uh, especially in evangelistic sermons, as a picture of Jesus himself, the good shepherd who is unhappy as long as one sheep is lost. And so he'll go out and, uh, and bring the sheep back. And many great poems and, and hymns have been, been written about it. That haven't there? Ira D. Sankey's great hymn in the 19th, 19th century. There were 90 and 9 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. And, and it, it paints this story in terms of what Jesus is doing to bring people back. Nothing wrong with that at all. Fantastic hymn, great story. Uh, you can apply it in that way. But notice how Jesus is applying it here. He's saying, not this is what I'm going to do for you. He's saying, this is what you should do for other people. If there's one sheep lost in the wilderness, the shepherd's heart is to go and get that sheep back. That's what I'm all about, and that's what you need to be all about as well. How much do we really care for one another? It's the exact opposite, isn't it, of what happened back in the book of Genesis. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, no, you're not his keeper. But you do have a responsibility for him or her. And so placing value on others, the same value that the shepherd places on him. One sheep matters. It's easy to look around the fold and say, oh, well, uh, 99 here, that's pretty good. You'll lose one or two, it's collateral damage. That's not the way it goes. If the master cares about every single one, then you have to care about them too. Last week, I was up in Bristol and uh, they asked me to preach about uh, the Christmas story, which is... Interesting at the end of February, but never mind, it was fun. And uh, particularly the shepherds in Luke. So I did a bit of work on Israeli shepherds. It was quite interesting to to, to look at uh, uh, what a shepherd was actually involved in. You know, they said that a shepherd could actually tell you how many sheep there were in the fold, not because he counted them, because when they came into the fold at night, he made them go between his legs. (laughs) And he'd feel the sheep as it went in past him. And because he knew the shape of every particular sheep... He knew which ones were there and which were not. And the reason for feeling it was to feel if there was anything wrong, if there were, uh, you know, there was a swelling or a protrusion or a, a cut or anything that needed dealing with. And so you checked every single sheep as it went through. And then even if you couldn't count up to 100, which some shepherds couldn't, you knew if there was one missing. Because shepherds were that involved with their sheep. And that's what lies behind John chapter 10, isn't it? My sheep, hear my voice. I am the good shepherd. I'm not a hireling. I, I, I'm not somebody who's just paid to do the job. I'm somebody who knows my sheep and they know me. And uh, it's interesting. There's a difference, isn't there, between uh, what British shepherds do and what Israeli shepherds do. I asked the girls if they could spot the difference this morning. And they said, well, one's on a tractor and one's not. Uh, Israeli sheep look fluffier and so on. But you spotted the difference, haven't you? In Britain, the shepherd tends to ride behind the sheep and keep an eye on them. In Israel, traditionally, he walks out in front because they hear his voice. They follow him. There's that close a relationship. And that's what Jesus is saying. If I have that care, that individual love for my sheep, then first of all, you can be encouraged because that's the way he feels about you. But second, it gives you an enormous responsibility, doesn't it? to the other sheep, and that's what he's talking about here. Place that value on other people because that's the value the shepherd places on them. And then he moves on, and uh, uh, after that, uh, he talks about if your brother sins against you. 
because this cosy picture of sheep all together in the sheepfold following the shepherd is a great picture, but you know and I know that in the church, it's not always that way. And uh, there are always problems. There are always difficulties. There are always fallings out. And God intends it to be that way. He doesn't want us all to be little clones that think and act exactly identically. He wants us to have different opinions. It's one of the reasons, let's face it, why you don't get verses in the Bible that prove the Trinity beyond doubt or prove uh, creation, evolution, something like that, beyond doubt. It's because God wants us to have some things that we can honorably disagree about. Because God values grace as much as he values truth. He wants us to search for the truth. He wants us to argue with one another. But he wants us to do it in such a way that we're showing grace and honour to one another at the same time. I remember when uh, we were having debates in Belmont about um, the ministry of women. And uh, most of the leadership team were coming to one conclusion. And there was one guy on the leadership team who was staunchly opposed to what the way the rest of us thought. He kept on saying, I'll just resign. I'll leave it. I feel uncomfortable here because you all think one thing, I think another. If I get out of the way, you can do what you want and the church will be peaceful. And we spent six months saying to him, stay, Ian, please, stay where you are, please. Because to have you there is fantastic. It's a demonstration to the church that we can disagree profoundly about some things and yet honour one another. And that is so important in the kingdom of God. You are the most valuable member of the leadership. Oh, I am, I am. Even though I disagree with you. Yes, stay put. And so he did, and I think it was good for everybody. <laughs> because it's all too easy, isn't it, to brush those things out of the way. So what does happen? If your brother disagrees with you, and Jesus puts it more strongly than that, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? Well, Jesus has a, a, a recipe here, which is what we ought to apply. and often don't apply when there is a disagreement. The first thing you've got to do, says Jesus, is talk it out just between the two of you. That's right against all our instincts, isn't it? We'd much rather go and grouse to somebody else and get their sympathy. And if you can get a few people who think the same way as you, then you feel much more justified in your position. But it's much more difficult to go and look somebody between the eyes and say, I've got something against you. (laughs) And when you can talk it out, just the two of you, Jesus says, that might sort it. You get success straight away. Because often the other person, once you've said what, the way you see things, will see things in a completely different way and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't realise. Oh, I'm sorry, can we just pray together? And that sorts out the situation. But what if he doesn't listen? Well, Jesus says the next thing is, it's you plus some others. <laughs> you take one or two others. Because it says in the Old Testament law that if, 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 if a crime's committed, it can't really be dealt with unless there are more than one witness to what's going on. So you need at least a couple of other people who are able to uh, testify to what's passed between you and what's been said. And you take those along with you as well. And then the likelihood is that this will bring success because when you turn up with a couple more people on the doorstep and say, look, we really want to talk to you, (laughs) that can bring lots of people to their senses very, very quickly. And you've got success without escalating the problem. But what if he doesn't listen at this point? Well, then, says Jesus, you take it to the church. Now, who is the church? Obviously, this is before Jesus' death and resurrection. There is no such thing as the church. What's he talking about? Well, clearly, Jesus sees that there is going to be a community of his disciples around, even when he's gone. And the disciples need to be be, be used to taking serious problems back to the church. Well, the word used for church here is just the Greek word ekklesia, those who have been called out. 
So I guess Jesus is applying it here to his band of disciples, but it will grow into the church. And so in our day, this advice to us is tell it to the church. If it gets to that serious level, don't just keep it as a feud between people. Make sure the church is involved as well. How do you involve the church? Well, I think some very bad things have been done over the last few years, especially in megachurches in America. <laughs> There's been one megachurch, for instance, which has its own um, sort of uh, internal uh, uh, messaging system. And uh, once you become a member of the church, you're on that thing. And they've got 5,000 people receiving these emails and talking with one another across the system. And whenever anybody is disciplined by the church, the details of his sin and the punishment that uh, that they're they're, they're proposing are put right up there on the internet for 5,000 people to see. I think that's horrendous. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind at all. They very rarely see restoration. I can say that. Because obviously after your dirty linen's been hung up for 5,000 people, that's not great, is it? You don't want to go back there again. I think what Jesus is, is saying here is, when he says, tell it to the church, is go to the leaders. Go to those who have authority over the, 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 the organization. Get them to talk to the person concerned. Then you're showing it's about as serious as it can possibly get. And when you've done that, he said, either you'll get success... Because this is serious enough. Oh, the whole church is involved here. This is, this, this is really bad news. Maybe I ought to reconsider my position. Or else, says Jesus, you've reached the end of the line. And it's at this point that discipline kicks in. Something needs to be done. And what Jesus says sounds quite scary to start with, doesn't it? Because he says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You might think, oh, I know how pagans and tax collectors were dealt by Orthodox Jews in these days, but uh, that sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? But actually, Matthew's Gospel is written by a tax collector. Absolutely. And so Matthew here, I think, is referring to how Jesus treated him. You know, and uh, although he was an outsider, although he didn't belong, and he was pretty conscious of that. Jesus extended the, all the warmth and, and fellowship he could to him. Uh, a man um, called Tim Gebhardt has written a book about this. And he said, whatever led anyone to conclude that when Matthew, who knows how Jesus treats tax collectors, would write, treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector, he means, get him out of here. Have nothing to do with him. I think it means exactly the opposite, he says. I think it means love him, accept him, invite him, eat with him, and keep on challenging him to be transformed into a faithful disciple of Jesus. And how could treat him like a Gentile mean get rid of him, reject him, shun him, in a gospel that ends with Jesus' commission to invite into the fellowship of Jesus Gentiles from every nation on earth? When Matthew writes, treat him like a tax collector, he surely means treat him the way Jesus treated me. He loved me, accepted me invited me. When Matthew writes, treat him like a Gentile, he surely means go to the ends of the earth to win him back into a life of discipleship. That's real discipline, isn't it? And Gephardt goes on like this. God expects us to live according to our mutually discerned convictions. It's not that we say, oh, no, no, it doesn't matter. It's all right. You can be, you can be with us. We, we don't really care you've done a bad thing, but we'll just not talk about it anymore. No, God expects us to live according to our mutually discerned convictions. And when someone later says, yeah, I know that we agreed together, but I'm not going to listen to the church. Then the church, filled with sorrow, says, then you are for us as a Gentile and a tax collector. We love you, but we recognize that you're opting out of this discerning fellowship. 
You're not acting like an insider to be reconciled, but like an outsider to be drawn back. Won't you come, please? When you do, you'll be brought back into the fellowship once more. And it seems to me that gets much closer to the heart of Jesus on this whole issue than than, uh, looking at it any other way. Well, we've got about one minute to go and we've got the final thing, which is the big story that Jesus gives to Peter. So we're not going to do this in any depth, but you've heard this many times before. How often shall I forgive my brother? Seven times and then I hit him. Does that sound about right? And Jesus says, oh, just think of any nonsense figure you like and then triple it. Seventy times seven. No, it doesn't matter. But, uh, you know, just keep on forgiving him, is what Jesus is saying. And then he tells a story, doesn't he, about the, the man who's been forgiven an enormous amount. The servant of the king who owes millions of pounds, it says in your footnotes, if you've got the church Bible, and isn't able to, to pay them back. He's totally helpless. And the king doesn't just give him what he asks for. He gives him far more. Because all he asks for is time, time, time. And the king, looking at him, realizes, you're never going to pay this debt, not in a million years. And so the king just lets him off, forgives him completely. And that's what's happened to us, isn't it, if we're Christians? We've been let off the hook. We don't have to suffer for our sins any longer because Jesus died in our place on the cross and we've been set free from the penalty and the power of sin and one of these days from the very presence of sin itself. It's an incredible liberation. And if that's what's happened to us, Jesus is saying, then we need to realize that the other half of the story shouldn't be happening at all. When you find somebody who owes you a few pennies and because he can't pay, he gets thrown into prison as a result. Because you are, have an unforgiving spirit and you will not let him off. It often is that way, isn't it? That people who have been forgiven for something hate the memory so much that when they see that sin in somebody else, they can't stand it. And they feel they have to condemn it and judge it just, just because they want nothing to do with it anymore. That's wrong. Psychologically, it's what human beings do. But if we've been forgiven for an enormous amount, then we need to realize we need to be forgivers too. And so that's what Jesus is saying in this whole chapter. If you want to live in my community, if you want to get even close to the kingdom of heaven, this is the way you've got to behave. Great people in the kingdom of heaven are people who are humble. People who place a value on others. People who don't stumble one another but welcome and encourage. People who deal with sins against them in a proper, decent, civilized way that wants to win the other person back. And people who forgive and forgive and forgive and keep on forgiving just because they've been forgiven themselves. Let's pray for a second, shall we? And let's just think where these principles from Matthew 18 have impacted on our thinking particularly this morning. There are things I need to think about. I'm sure there are for you too. So let's just take a second to register them and bring them to God. Father, I want to thank you for the the warmth and the togetherness of this fellowship here. I thank you for the way in which real Christian love and thoughtfulness and consideration is, is practiced here and how people prize one another above themselves and, and, and do whatever they can to build a kind of community that represents the the love and warmth and acceptance of the king. But we're always at risk of that because 
We're human beings. And we will behave in certain ways if we're not careful, if we don't constantly lay hold of the grace of God that would destroy that. So help us, Father, each of us individually and together as a fellowship so to grab hold of your principles of love and mercy and forgiveness that we demonstrate a style of living here that other people coming in will recognize as something that could only come from the living God. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, Steve, you're taking over again? Great, lovely. <laughs>